Episode 229, One Core Skill All Successful Startup Teams Possess. Today, I speak with Alex Fair, Managing Partner at MedStarter Ventures and CEO at MedStarter. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. No one denies, it is a tough world out there for health startups. Finding a customer is tough, financial models are tough to figure out, operationalizing is tough, but the same is true for those other healthcare stakeholders attempting to purchase and implement the innovations startups are creating. Here's another unassailable truth. Everything is just easier within a supportive community. You gain feedback, you gain mentorship, networking opportunities, and maybe just a venue to sob into your beers together. Today, I speak with Alex Fair, managing partner at MedStarter Ventures and CEO at MedStarter. MedStarter is a community for health tech entrepreneurs that also provides venture capital to crowdsourced contest winners. Spoiler alert, the core skill that all successful startup teams possess, listening, the ability to listen. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Alex. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. What's an ecosystem program? What do you mean by that? And how do you use that in order to identify the companies which are going to you know, change the world in some way? Ten years and four days ago today, I showed up on April Fool's Day in 2009 at a meetup group in New York, which had just started. It became what was called Health 2.0 New York City. So a couple months later, my friend Eugene Barankovich, who was running it, who started it, asked me to run it while he went off to Europe. He's now a head of innovation at Bayer, by the way. Great guy, Eugene Barankovich. So I started running this ecosystem as a way to sort of help give back to the community that had helped me with a startup I had been working on at the time. And so we ran some events and the, and the group got bigger and bigger. And actually, it became the first of hundreds of groups like this around the world. And then we consulted. We helped all the other groups, we showed them, we gave them freely all of our forms and our examples and everything from sponsorship contracts to ideas for the, you know, the next 10 events. So the Health 2.0 New York community led to accelerators being started. So Blueprint Health uh, was a big accelerator here in New York for a while. We brought them down to New York. Startup Health started out of our Health 2.0 meetup group. So an ecosystem really is you do events and you keep track of people and you introduce them to each other. You give them ways to engage with each other. You give them forums and you engender or you encourage the development or you help the development of stakeholder programs. So the city of New York came to us in 2012 and said, hey, what can we do to help startups? And so we designed what became the Health Tech Pilot Program, which basically partnered up startups and hospitals, and that threw up $3 million a year in innovation funding and got the hospitals to the table. It was very hard to get hospitals to the table for healthcare innovators. I mean, they, we call it death by pilot. The companies would be trying to get into a hospital. They would die before they got their first real customer pilot. They would die during the pilot or after the pilot because they weren't being paid. And then the hospital would just want to like publish a paper on the topic, you know, not actually start paying them to actually change healthcare. But that was in 2012. The Health Tech Pilot Program helped take New York from being a distant third in terms of healthcare innovation funding. And, and then by 2016, it was over $886 million, making it 
I think, 53% higher than even Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And then, of course, in 2017 with the, the Flatiron and 2018, it's a huge billion-dollar acquisitions. Just one company alone, more money going into healthcare innovation in New York. So the ecosystem model, basically bringing everybody together every month, talking about these things, but then also being hyper-collaborative and, and all the other meetup groups and accelerator programs of just sort of being the forum where everybody can talk and do things. And it's newsletters and events and websites and things like that. We started doing this in other cities. We did it in New Orleans and we built their ecosystem. So one of the reasons New Orleans has become very prominent in healthcare innovation lately is because we got four hospitals, uh, insurance company, the health department, and 16 other sponsors to get together to run a bunch of contests and to develop their ecosystem. So we actually you know, work with these ecosystems around the world to help run contests and to learn about the startups in their places, in their locations or regions. And then we travel around to these ecosystems that we help and, and encourage and then basically find the best companies in each and then invest in them. But it's not just the companies, it's the stakeholders, it's it's all the, the designers and developers and the, the people make up the ecosystem. So what does success look like to you? You know, is this your business or do you have a conviction that goes beyond a paycheck? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want sort of your legacy to be of doing all of these things? Success really is about changing people's lives, about making everybody healthier and making the years that they're alive better, right? So healthier and happier. I think even just something like misfit wearables, you know, helping them get their first 8,000 units sold. And then eventually they, they got bought by Fossil. And now Fossil, you know, beautiful watch company now is also a beautiful health data company in addition to being a watch company. So it's really bringing it mainstream. It's funny because people used to always call it, and they still do, they call all of these innovations digital health, right? But the fact is, it's really just about health. If you have a new idea that helps people be healthier, we, we love to help companies like that. So to me, it's A to B to goes to C, but eventually C is just making us all healthier. Yes, business model is based upon investing in the best ideas and helping. You know, we actually kind of went out of business before we realized that we were supposed to be a venture fund. We were so busy helping all these companies, you know, all these startups, these early stage companies, we weren't really helping ourselves. So we had to sort of stop and rethink and say, well, what's a viable business model here that, you know, allows us to help the most companies we can and then focuses that effort on the companies that have the most potential for success. So running the contests and challenges and crowdfunding programs helps us identify which are the best companies and also getting to know them in the ecosystems and having partners in every ecosystem helps us know these companies. And then we help the companies that everybody thinks has the most potential. And then finally, they actually help people and, and someday we'll exit you know, the companies and, and our investors will appreciate it. So what kind of founder really impresses you? You know, obviously you meet a lot of people who aspire to create and, and build a successful startup. You know, we always love to see founders who have done it before and or have been successful in some field and that that can translate to it. So obviously their history is important, but not always critical. Probably the number one thing I want to see from a from a startup founder is is hustle. I want to see them working it. If I give you 10 opportunities, I need you to ask for an 11th before I've even run out of breath explaining that what to do on the 10th. And you may not know what to do initially, but if we guide you, you know, I want to see you do it. So the, one of my favorite examples is Jen Olson. Uh, she entered one of our contests back in 2014. 
she didn't even have a Twitter handle when she started and it was a Fitbit for groups. She was a gym teacher and she had done this for her gym class and, you know, she really wanted to take it out to the world. And so she enters one of our contests and we tell her things every day, things like, oh, set up a Twitter account and own tweet and go find bloggers who, you know, talk about your space and find your crowd and then go engage them. So she and her team tweeted 766 times in this like four week crowd challenge that we ran. And she got three degrees of freedom away from her and some guy who ran like 23 medical centers, not just some guy, Danny Prince, to actually adopt her idea into the rehabilitation programs that he was running across the southeast United States. And then nine months later to the day, she's on stage at CES accepting a partnership and a big fake check from Adidas because they're going to put her devices on every kid in America. So the reason she got from point A to B to C was her hustle, right? She listened and she, you know, had the energy and the wherewithal to really just run with the ball. So, I mean, we can give them the ball, we throw the ball, but they really have to catch, receive and juke a little bit and get to the end zone. What else did she do there? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people that spend their life on Twitter to... I'm going to say marginal results. That's just how she got her first customer. I mean, she had been trying to sell to gym teachers. So she was adaptive in that in this contest, she wound up selling to rehabilitation centers. Yes, they have groups of people who need to be trained and they have a real business reason to make them healthier. Right. That's their job. But how did she use Twitter in such a way that she actually created a relationship with this guy? Like I said, there's plenty of people who are on Twitter all day long and never managed to turn it into a business opportunity. Was she doing something else beyond that as well? Well, so we run these things called crowd challenges. So in the challenge, so in this case, it was sponsored by the American Heart Association. And the American Heart Association said, we need things that are going to make people healthier cardiovascularly by 20% by 2020. Remember, this is 2014. And so we had I believe about 37 teams competing online all at the same time, bringing everybody to a landing page on MedStarter, which was all about cardiovascular health innovations, right? So in that contest, you know, something like, I think that it was an early one. So I think it was only about 9.8 million impressions were made on Twitter by the people in the contest, right, over the course of the month. We've had twice that much in an hour sometimes now, but back then, that was actually a lot. And so that sort of takes the message much further and people hear about the contest or the challenge or the city or whatever it is that we're, that is sponsoring the contest. And then that brings in, you know, 50, 100,000 people to the site. And those people are not going to be the people necessarily that she tweeted at, right? So you get this crowd effect. And so once you get a crowd behind your idea, so in her case, Danny Prince was actually, like I said, three degrees of freedom because we actually traced it back to try to figure out how it actually happened. So she had a friend who had a friend who was a bailer. That friend who was a bailer sent it to Prince. And then Prince is the one who went to her project page on MedStarter. So MedStarter is a crowdfunding site. So every project that I'm referring to, like in this one, had a page that explained, you know, the problem they're solving, how they're going to solve it, their traction date, you know, their clinical benefit, and the things that we want to know in healthcare. And then it gives people the opportunity to not just like or follow or give them some money, but say, yeah, I want to do a pilot. I want to do a partnership. I want to invest in that company. So one of the key things about healthcare is that, as we were talking about, the sale is indirect, right? So I'm the patient or I'm the doctor. I'm not usually the buyer. I don't usually have a say in what new ideas get used on me or what new ideas I can use for my patients. I don't know, you know, I, I don't have, I'm not that involved in selecting innovations. But here at MedStarter, for the first time, people are going to say, yes, I like that idea. I'd like to try that. And you can do that on the site. 
we use all that data to figure out who wins the contest. So what we're really doing on a mid-starter crowd challenge is we're doing intense market research validation on which idea is the most likely to be successful, which is why when we have a winner like Jen Olson, it's not really surprising they take off like rocket ships, right? Because you've just had, like I said, the entrepreneur 766 times tweets. It gets to the right people. It's in this contest where a lot of people are looking at this. It gets a lot of attention. I mean, we'll compete with the Kardashians or Trump on a good day on Twitter. And not necessarily that that's something that we looked for, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it, well, it's amazing life, that, that healthcare, yeah. <laughs> As healthcare innovation geeks, we don't expect to do that. We're not releasing sex tapes. We're releasing tapes on how to you know, do better patient discharge. Not interesting, but we can make it interesting to the right people at the right time. We get people excited about things and some idea like an idea that helps people have babies because they uh, get off prednisone because they have lupus with a digital app that actually works better than prednisone. Those ideas get to market, get the pilots, get funded and get to that next level. And now they're actually raising their next fund. So if you were interested, this company's called Miami. Uh, so that they can, once they get that crowd behind them of lupus patients, of doctors who treat lupus patients, of hospitals who want to be known for treating lupus patients well, and for people who have associated diseases like uh, RA, that's the crowd that matters to these early stage companies. If I'm an executive at one of these large institutions, maybe I've got an innovation center, maybe I don't. How do I wade through... Everything that's going on to, you know, first identify a startup that might be able to deliver something that I care about. But then secondly, and probably just as importantly, how do I operationalize that? Because the culture, obviously, at a startup and the nimbleness and the agility and the ability to turn on a dime is definitely not something that your average health system is adept at incorporating into the framework, let's just say. I, I was a hospital CIO for years, and so I understand the problem deeply from the hospital and the physician's office perspectives. It's not easy knowing which innovator to work with and things like that. That's one of the reasons we created the crowd challenge model. And, and also, you have you don't have time to look at an infinite number of ideas. I mean, just each meeting, each interview, and you don't know if they're going to be a viable company. It's really hard to know from a, a large stakeholder perspective who to work with. On the other hand, you know that if you do not innovate, that somebody else is going to do it and you're not going to be in business, right? If you don't find better ways to treat your patients better for less, hit that triple aim or the quadruple aim, you know, all those metrics, you're not going to be thriving. You're going to cut staff and you're going to reduce centers or something. So it's innovate or die, right? And But then how do you do it? There's in-house innovation programs, right? So you see that at a lot of places where they have their development teams and things like that. And that's a good way because you get the stakeholders engaged. There's external innovation programs or open innovation programs like what we run, where we're basically saying we the hospital throws down the gauntlet on whatever it is. So maybe it's diabetes care or social determinants of health or blockchain innovations. And we run contests on all these things. I mean, our system, I'll tell you our approach, and there's other approaches, but our system is basically you throw down the, the challenge and say, look, $25,000 in a pilot for whoever you know, comes up with the best idea. And then you ask the crowd to tell you which ones they like best. And then you have your internal staff look at all of the top 15 ideas. You don't spend time with all 150 ideas that apply. You only spend time with, you know, the top 20 of your teams or however many you like. I mean, people tend to find, we've seen it happen all the time, that people will spend like 70 hours on the site 
you know, just going through every single project that's in an area. Because if you ask for all the diabetes innovations, you get 70 diabetes innovations all in one place, all with the same format. And it asks you to rate each of the ideas and it keeps track of it and then gives you a report afterward. That's a very useful tool for going through sort of all the companies that are interested in working with you. When I say interested, they really have to be interested to fill out a MedStarter application because we purposely make it difficult. We purposely make it so that they're going to have to work to earn your business. So we're doing a bunch of different things when we do a challenge. One of the best programs we've seen is both in internal and external, where the problems are being defined by the internal stakeholders. So a friend of mine, Chris Komatas, did a program like this in Australia, where he basically, and, and, and the Cedar Cyanide does a great job with this too, and there's a, there's a bunch of them in New York, all over the world that are doing this, that they have their internal stakeholders come in and go through the innovation lab and look at the ideas and look at the projects and define the problems to be solved. And then they use that to help make the teams either coming in or that they're asking to come in better. And then they give them the opportunity to, to do more and then, of course, scale it outside of that institution. So th- there's a lot of different approaches. We have an open problem. I think uh, you, you interviewed uh, Naomi the other day and she has, you know, her whole initiate model. There's, there's so many different, in her OGAP, there's so many different ways to approach the problem, but all of them start with a good problem definition, people to validate and work with the teams and to correct them where needed, and then sourcing the best teams and then, and then helping them move on to the next level. So that was Naomi Freed, episode 222 that Alex just mentioned. So, Alex, what's the worst advice that you hear perpetuated? What's this theme that maybe you hear people bring up or repeat and you're just eyeball roll? You don't really think about this that much, but I see a lot of times legal counsel and board advisors and investors saying, you know, don't don't talk about your idea. Don't go public with it. Don't go on a crowdfunding site with it, you know, because they think that all people really need is money. All people really need is, you know, one good customer. And yeah, those are important. But you also need feedback and input from the world. And you need awareness. You need to drive things. People ask me how to scale their idea all the time. And one of the big things is figuring out the model and then just spreading the word. I mean, there's a there's an African proverb that that, that goes, um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, bring the tribe. One of the things people say is don't tell anybody about it. Well, that's exactly wrong. Okay, yes, I understand if you're doing something that is highly IP protected and you can't even talk about it at all, there are certain situations where that's the right move. Most of the time it isn't. And most of the time also, what the differentiator is going to be is implementation. Ideas are a dime a dozen. For every Mm -hmm. idea, probably 150 people have the same idea. Mm -hmm. And one of them is going to manage to be successful. And it's the one that is able to implement the idea. Absolutely. It's all about execution. I mean, I I saw one of our past successes, uh, Michelle Longmire from Medible at, uh, was it South by Southwest? And she's doing fantastic. She's a lot of people in her company now. But when we first met her, it was just her and a developer. And what she was doing was really not that distinctive at the time, but she was doing it really well. And she you know, could explain it well and had great design. And the difference is all about execution. And she just executed beautifully. And she, she was a resident at UCSF at the time. She was you know, just out of medical school. And now she's fantastic CEO of a great company. Is there some pattern that you see there amongst great implementers or executors? Is there something, some background that they all have or just way of thinking or, you know, like what's the common denominator amongst founders who are able to pull off a great implementation? 
I'm going to say listening. If I was going to pick one thing, give me somebody who can listen, which is ironic because people tell me that I'm terrible at listening. But yeah, I, I think that the fact that they can listen to their customers, they can listen to their designers when they say it's got to be built like this if you want, you know, engagement, listen to the data that's telling them, you know, do this, don't do that. Don't ignore the big stuff, right? You know, and listen to advice from people who have been there and done that. If you are selling into hospitals and you've got a hospital leader on your team and she says, well, you need to think about the clawback, listening, right? So, and of course, I'm always going to say, listen to the crowd. And the crowd is like customers and, and patients and uh, physicians. Air any grievances that you have, Alex, what's your biggest frustration right now? You know, with the marketplace or, or with maybe a something that's regarded as common sense right now or just conventional wisdom, what needs to change, in, in your opinion, for the healthcare industry to transform at the rate that it probably needs to be transforming? Whoever's in charge, you know, they should appreciate the effects of CCHIT, which preceded the Affordable Care Act, and then, of course, the resulting the value-based rewards and incentive programs that are built into a lot of legislation that happened under the last administration. So, yes, fine, repeal, replace, do whatever you have to do, but do not change how it's driving innovation. I do think that that is very frustrating, seeing an industry that's so highly dependent on the regulations and the changes to the environment that are driven by that. It feels very uncertain, and I just really wish we could all you know, get along and agree that, that we need innovation. And if you're going to mess with things, don't do things to mess with that. The second thing I would say that annoys the crap out of me is when I see like a, a hospital innovation program that thinks it's so special that it wants the startups to pay them to work with them on the idea when they're getting a benefit out of it, too. So that to me is is like me having my son pay me to go, you know, play ball with him. I get a benefit from playing ball with him. You know, why would I make him pay me to play ball with him? So, yeah, we've seen that uh, that emerging lately, which I think is really strange and disturbing. But what's going to be the outcome of that? So say I am a large, very fancy academic medical center and I'm like, you know what? I can charge. So I'm going to. What's the deleterious effect that that is going to spiral into either for the ecosystem or for that academic medical center itself? Is there a consequence which is going to maybe that academic medical center is actually going to fall behind the innovation curve because the most innovative startups are not going to want to work with somebody they have to pay when there's plenty of people who are who, who would welcome their innovation? It's not necessarily going to harm the institution. So if you're some great institution and you want this startup and that startup then says that I have this institution working with me, but I need to raise a million dollars to work with them, they're going to be able to go out and raise the million dollars and then come back to them and say, okay, fine, we're ready to do it. It's going to slow things down because raising money is not, you know, snapping your fingers. The, the other thing is, this, what's the purpose? Really, is that $6,000 per patient going to make a difference to you? Billion dollar academic center? I don't think so. It serves no real purpose. And they are going to lose some of the best startups who just say, you know what, this other not as big name center is going to do this trial with me and I'm going to fix lupus with them, not with you. Sorry. So they are going to lose some some traction there. So it slows things down. It really serves no purpose. I mean, I know money is important, but it, it's not that much money. And see, they're going to lose access to the best innovations. Well, it feels very predatory to me. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I'm trying to look at this from the academic medical center's standpoint, and maybe they're thinking, oh, these startups, they take so much of our time. We're almost like mentors, unpaid. So, you know, we need them. If they're going to use our facility, then they can pay us to run these tests. Well, you know, what does the startup have as capital? It's got ideas, it's got energy, and it's got stock. Take a reasonable amount of stock. Okay, I've seen some say we want to have rights to all your IP or 50% of your company or, you know, super, I would say, abuse of their position uh, type asks. But you should get a couple of points of the company. So there is a, a way for them to make money on it, especially if they help them make them successful. But don't ask for cash because they don't usually have enough cash to pay themselves, let alone a hospital who doesn't even need it in the first place. They have stock to give away and they'd be happy to say, yes, one of our shareholders is X institution. Uh, and so they have a vested interest. So there is, are good ways to do it. A company you know, like Mount Sinai Ventures you know, invests and does really well run by my uh, friend Brent Stackhouse. So uh, they do really well when they invest in companies and they help them move along. Who are your proudest graduates of going through MedStarter? I love Sunny Vu, Misfit Wearables. And then obviously we talked about Jen Olson. She's great. I love Regina Holiday. And I know she's not a business per se in, in terms of investable business, but she's just this inspirational artist. You know, it's like they say the words that launched a thousand ships. Well, she does art that helps, you know, hundreds of new ideas get out to market and really sort of changes this discussion around healthcare innovation, making sure that the patients are considered first. And she did three crowdfunding projects on MedStarter and, and raised her first funding for her first conference, which is called Cinderblocks, which is this year in July in Maryland. Uh, so for patient-centered innovations, we'll be doing a pitch contest there too. And that's what we do. We do pitch contests and challenges around the country to find the best new ideas in different spaces and regions and things like that. I love Ashish Patel and Fred Trotter from CareSet, also known as DocGraph, which also got crowdfunded on MedStarter. And so those, those are sort of like my old ones before we started investing. Now, I love Karenware. Karenware makes hospital gowns that don't suck. Okay, so they, they, they close in the back, for example. Tuiage, they're the company that went from one hospital to over 60. And they're basically, they changed communications between ambulances and emergency departments so that when you get to the ED, there's a big display that says who's on what ambulance, what's happening, what they need as soon as they arrive. So if you know if you have a burn victim, you know what to have. If you know have a, a heart attack, you know what to have. You know, if you need to do that big epinephrine shot into the heart, you know, for overdose, you know what to do. So knowing that faster, getting the person admitted before they're even in the hospital, all that's possible because of this and it saves lives every day. I love Miami, which is a great app that a digital therapeutic that can change how any autoimmune disease is affecting you, anything from RA to lupus to migraines or what have you. And it's been shown to be clinically more effective than medications by about 30% in their first clinical study, which is really exciting. Uh, you know, my fourth one is, is, you know, I'm a diabetic and, you know, I have to st stick my finger or wear one of those CGMs, which has a needle in it and I have to change it every seven to 14 days. So my one of my favorite companies is AlertG that is developing and has gotten pretty small, which is a good thing for a wearable. When they first started, it was like the size of a refrigerator, which is not good for a wearable. So AlertG uh, has a CGM you wear on your wrist that doesn't break your skin, lasts forever, and uses RF to tell me my continuous glucose data, which in the first three days of wearing a CGM, I learned more about what was making my glucose spike than in my first six years as a diabetic. 
If people are interested in learning more about MedStarter, Alex, where would you suggest they start? If you're interested in the fund and what we do there, it's medstarter.vc. Medstarter.com is where you can find all of the uh, innovations that are currently funding uh, at any point in time. If you want to get involved in a community, we love, you know, if you're in New York, medstarter.nyc is our New York community. You can always just call us, 530-MedStarter, and we're happy to talk to you. I thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Alex Fair from MedStarter. Thanks for having us. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.